Welcome to another episode of Conduct Detrimental. I am Dan Lust and joined, as always, by Dan Wallach. This week, just one topic, just, uh, you know, maybe the most important topic in all of sports law. That is a lawsuit challenging baseball's antitrust exemption filed Monday morning. Dan and I got our heads together. By Monday afternoon, we had lined up a mega guest for the show. That is the lawyer for the plaintiffs, Jim Quinn, a return guest on our show. Dan, a big get and a big topic. Well, since we had him on before, and I used to work for a while, Gotchel, many years ago, I thought we stood a pretty good chance of landing this particular guest. And if you had told me that on December 20th, we'd be interviewing Jim Quinn on Concrete Detrimental, I'd be saying this is a preview of the St. Louis versus NFL relocation lawsuit. But alas, it was not to be. But even though that case settled, Another major case came down the pike earlier today, and I knew we had to get, we had to get him as a guest. He's one of the most you know impactful lawyers in the history of U.S. sports law. I mean, he wrote the book. Literally, he wrote the book, How Free Agency, what's called Don't Be Afraid to Win, How Free Agency Changed the Business of Pro Sports. So Jim has been involved in suing leagues and has been at the sort of the epicenter of granting and, and gaining player rights in a multitude of different sports going back almost 40 years. He was the head of the litigation department at Weill Gotchel back in the day when I was a, an associate at Weill. And he's somebody that I've looked up to for many, many years. And he's still, you know, a trailblazer in the field of sports law. And this might be one of his biggest lawsuits yet, tackling and overturning baseball's fabled antitrust exemption going back nearly 100 years. We bring it up with Jim as well. And uh, I think it's a fair question. When news of this broke, and obviously we had conduct detrimental, we're on it very quickly. We had, I think we were the first site. I think we're still the only site that has the complaint up in any way, shape or form. So certainly if you want to check that out, uh, we have the link directly to the 33 page complaint. But what I think is fair, you know, when I was speaking to my people in sports media circles, there wasn't really that much mainstream coverage of this. I know Law360, Law.com, Bloomberg, you know, your normal law sites picked this story up. And I think The Athletic had a piece on it. That's it. I don't think any other sports entities picked this up. And when I reached out to one of my friends at a, at a major sports entity, a baseball reporter, the question that he asked me was, well, it would be cool if this is a real challenge to baseball's antitrust exemption, but what about the scouts case that they tried to challenge baseball's antitrust exemption? What about the Chicago Cubs roofers case tried to challenge baseball's antitrust exemption and both were dismissed. The Supreme Court didn't want any piece of those. What makes this case any different? So I think it's a totally fair question. And certainly, you know, who else to ask other than Jim? Jim's the, the plaintiff's lawyer behind the case. Well, I think as, as he'll say during the interview, the real catalyst to give this case real, you know, just strength and possibilities is the Austin decision. I mean, you know, when we get into the merits of his lawsuit, you know, there's some language in the Supreme Court's decision in Alston, which basically calls INDICTA, the Major League Baseball antitrust exemption, anachronistic. And to quote Jim, all but invites a lawsuit challenging that exemption in court. And this is that lawsuit. I think, you know, given what's left of baseball's antitrust exemption, basically, you know, expansion, relocation, minor league baseball this is probably the perfect vehicle for challenging the exemption. So, you know, I know there's been a lot of cynicism and, and skeptics around the viability of this case, but how could you say that after reading the language in Alston, which serves as a, an invitation to bring this lawsuit? And I think just on that, for, you know, those who don't know what we're talking about, Alston, that's NCA versus Alston. It's basically, I mean, it's the Supreme Court case that's talking about athlete compensation didn't necessarily open the door to name, image, and likeness law, but I think it, it prevented a door from being shut on its face. So once the Supreme Court came out and gave a ringing endorsement 
to athletes being paid and getting rid of kind of bars to student, I think it was academic related competition in that case, you know, then it just said, it kind of gave the signal to states around the country to pass more NIL laws. So why, why, and we'll bring it up with Jim and Dan, you, you mentioned it well, that case had nothing to do with baseball. I mean, it, it, I guess in some extent, college baseball players, but not really, it had nothing to do with major league baseball. And that court went completely out of its way to criticize what, you know, this quasi antitrust exemption that people have recognized that baseball had for years. So, you know, I, I was reading an article by a friend of the show, Bill Shaken, a Los Angeles Times a sports reporter who's been on our show before talking about the Trevor Bauer case. Uh, you know, doing my research for our show, he has an article back in June and he had some experts that he was citing in an article of his that people predicted because of that opinion back in June of 2021, that there would be a new challenge to baseball's antitrust exemption. And here it is, right? This is the first challenge to baseball's antitrust exemption since Boston. So that's, I think, Jim's argument here, that the world has changed since the roofers case, since the scouts case. Yeah. I mean, it's more than just a criticism of the baseball antitrust exemption. The words that the Supreme Court uses in the Alston case to describe baseball's antitrust exemption are unrealistic, inconsistent, and an aberration. That sounds like more than just an invitation. It's all but begging a lawsuit to give the court a vehicle for paring back further and or eliminating baseball's potentially anachronistic antitrust exemption, given how much the world and, and how much the business of baseball has changed in 100 years. It's a year-round business enterprise. I mean, we're going to get into that on the podcast. But the reasons which justified the judicial creation of baseball's antitrust exemption in 1922 simply don't exist even in part anymore. So I think this, this could be the case. And I, I agree with Jim that he's got a, an exceptionally strong challenge to baseball's antitrust exemption backed inferentially by this amazing language in Alston, which even without it, I thought a case like this would have legs to stand on, but that language really serves as a harbinger and almost a prediction of the likelihood that the court will at the very least grant cert in this case. So before we kick it to Jim, just to be clear, this lawsuit's filed by two firms. It's Wild Gotchel and Mangis and Berg and Antrophy. So Jim was with Wild Gotchel and has since moved on to Berg and Antrophy. Dan, I think without further ado, I think if we can kick it to Jim, right? He's the star of the show, we better give it to him. And without further ado, let us kick it to Jim Quinn. Jim, welcome back to Conduct Detrimental. How are you? I'm great. Glad to be back. Yeah. So our listeners will know you. We had you on last time to talk about the lawsuit that you are currently representing the city of Oakland in an antitrust lawsuit against the NFL. Obviously, our listeners know that that was part and parcel of the St. Louis Rams antitrust, you know, contractual saga. And you explain the differences between the Raiders lawsuit and the Rams lawsuit. But now we're here for specifically for an antitrust lawsuit. And that is the latest challenge to baseball's antitrust exemption a lawsuit that was filed Monday morning about baseball's maybe illicit takeover of the minor league system. So Jim, I know you are one of a, a few attorneys on this case, but we wanted to have you on here to kind of take the platform. We'll, we'll get into the little bit of the history of baseball's antitrust exemption and, and why you think this case might be the one to take it down. But before we get into it, Jim, you, the floor is yours. You want to give us kind of a, a high level of what this complaint is about? Yeah, sure. I'm sure you and your listeners are aware that approximately a year ago, Major League Baseball, which apparently a plan had been in the works for some time, decided that they wanted to essentially take over the running of minor league baseball. In so doing, they got together and decided that instead of the 160 minor league teams that had affiliation agreements with the 30 major league teams, 
they were going to reduce that number from 160 to 120. And by doing so, they basically put out a business or certainly had an enormous economic impact on the 40 teams that were eliminated. When I say eliminated, it meant that they were no longer going to be affiliated with Major League Baseball in a formal sense. And that is really to be an affiliate in minor league baseball is the only way you're going to make any money and draw in fans because obviously fans go to see the future stars in major league baseball. And if you don't have those future stars, you don't really have a viable minor league team. So this complaint essentially asserts or lays out the fact that what happened really is that the 30 major league owners got together and decided that they were going to limit the output, i.e. the number of minor league teams, and essentially doing so put those teams out of business. It's a form of boycott. It's a form of market restrictions. And one that, frankly, absent the antitrust exemption that, at least for now, exists in baseball, one I think easily would be found to be a illegal antitrust Section 1 conspiracy. But as you know, Major League Baseball, uh, and we can go back to the history if, if, if that's helpful, has enjoyed what has been come to be known as the baseball antitrust exemption, dating back literally 100 years, almost to the day. There was a decision by the Supreme Court in 1920 that found, however illogically and, and stupidly, that Major League Baseball was not then in interstate commerce and therefore the antitrust laws didn't apply. That obviously was was probably incorrect then, certainly is incorrect now. And that case, however, was reaffirmed over the years and in its latest iteration, it was reaffirmed in 1972 in the what's known as the Kurt Flood case, a case where the players at that time were attacking the Major League Baseball Reserve Clause. And in that context, the Supreme Court, while recognizing, frankly, that the exemption made no sense, they, relying on the concept of stare decisis, which we can get into as well, I love Roman terms, Latin terms, they decided that however improper or stupid it may be, they were going to leave it up to Congress to change uh, the baseball exemption. So one might ask, well, what's changed? since then. And there have been a number of cases since 1972 that have, and the lower courts, have upheld the exemption because of the existence of the flood case. Most of those courts have have said that they believe that the exemption is wrong, but that notwithstanding that, uh, they were going to follow Supreme Court precedent. The difference is that, well, there are a number of differences, but the major one is in a recent court decision by the Supreme Court in the NCAA case involving student athletes, the Supreme Court, and in its majority opinion written by Justice Gorsh, went out of its way essentially to take a shot at the baseball exemption, saying that it was essentially made little or no sense and almost inviting somebody to come and challenge the baseball exemption. And we've decided we were going to accept that invitation. Just a couple of things, Dan, and I'll hand it over to you. So for those that, that don't know, I mean, obviously, you know, if you're a baseball fan, you're listening to this, you understand how the minor league systems work. You know, at a certain point, there's rookie ball, there's low A ball, there's high A ball, there's double A ball, triple A ball. If you're just trying to craft an effective business model and you want to consolidate the top prospects, you'd probably want to do that on a, you know, on a fewer amount of teams 
right? So people, as Jim mentioned, you know, could see the top stars and they're condensed maybe in a low A ball team and like a double A, triple A. Baseball, for, for better or for worse, for, for a number of years had ballooned up to 160 teams. And maybe there wasn't that consolidation of talent, those consolidation of coaches to help develop those players. So baseball made, I, I think, from all intents and purposes, a business decision to try to consolidate those teams, consolidate those coaches and, and put those players you know, with the best coaches possible, right? Best facilities and not have to you know, have players spread out across six or seven different teams. It would just be a handful of teams. So the lawsuit, Jim, your, your clients here, right, are four former Major League Baseball affiliates. You know, I believe it's obviously Staten Island Yankees are the lead team. And then there's a, a Tigers affiliate, a Giants affiliate, and an Astros affiliate. So the reason I bring this up, certainly maybe that makes sense from a business level. But if this wasn't Major League Baseball, this was another business titan that was making a decision to basically just eliminate 40 companies that were in its field, there, there would be an issue. So, you know, I, I think that's important, right? Baseball is allowed to operate in a kind of monopolistic sense because it's had this protection. So what they're doing isn't necessarily something so wrong that we would scoff at. But without antitrust exemption, right, baseball probably doesn't do that. If they, if they have the protection, baseball thinks they can do whatever they want. So, I mean, we'll get into it, Jim. I have some other cases that came up on this challenge, but... No, I think, look, you make a, a very good point. Obviously, the other four or other three and a half major sports all operate under the antitrust laws because that's one of the great anomalies is that only baseball has this exemption. The courts have made clear that the exemption doesn't apply to any other sport. And so I think it's safe to say that baseball over the years has been able to do certain things, including things relating to franchise relocations and, and others that would otherwise be subject to possible antitrust attack, but they sit back comfortably and say, aha, we have the antitrust exemption, what's the problem? Right, and then I think just as a final point that I'll, I'll give it to Dan, what, what baseball, as you mentioned, right, has had this for a hundred years, and NFL, hockey, you know, these sports, kind of modeled their leagues after baseball. Baseball is the oldest of our, our four major sports. So where there is antitrust exemption for baseball, the other sports have been able to kind of get around this with this non-statutory labor exemption. When there is not an, an antitrust exemption, you know, the union, which Jim, you represent all four major pro sports unions, right? Where well, the union and the league can agree to do things that are normally violative of antitrust law, be it the, you know, the draft or, you know, rookie wage scales. So if you pull down, in theory, we'll play this thing all the way out. If, if baseball loses antitrust exemption, right, and they no longer have this, maybe this has domino effects on the, on the other sports. But I think that's important for our listeners to know. The whole foundation of pro sports is kind of built on baseball's backs, and then, and then we've worked kind of from there. Yeah, no, that's very true. I mean, the, the player systems that arose in all the other sports were all based on the reserve system in, in baseball. Now, as I'm sure you know, one of the great ironies here is that uh, in 1998, something called the Curt Flood Act, the baseball exemption was actually whittled down in part relating to players. So that as part of the settlement of the strike slash lockout in the mid 90s, the players insisted that the owners go to Congress with them jointly and get an exemption to the exemption. And what's left, of course, is they have a baseball antitrust exemption that applies to everything else except players. Jim, you know, the world has changed so much. And indeed, baseball has changed so much since 1922. At that time, baseball was thought to be an exhibition. It wasn't viewed as interstate commerce, but baseball has long been interstate commerce. Why has the exemption 
withstood litigation attacks for so many years, even after that, those anachronistic days where baseball was viewed in a different light. And today, it's a year-round, multi-billion dollar business enterprise. Is that reason enough to rescind the exemption? Well, yeah. I mean, on any rational level, it should be reason enough. I think the reason, and this is speculation to some degree, but the reason why it has somehow managed to stay alive in the wake of the Kurt Flood decision in the early 1970s is the notion that, well, the court said, yes, this is stupid, but you should go to Congress. And in fact, there's never been a successful concerted effort by any group to actually get Congress to take any any measures in this regard. And frankly, at this stage, you know, I think it's fair to say, knowing what Congress is like now, it's hard to imagine that they'll take action on this. They have other things that they're dealing with. And the key really is that um, the Supreme Court in its decision just six months ago were making it pretty clear that they thought that, that this may be time. One of the things, the reason this came up in, in the antitrust case involving student athletes was because at that point, the NCA was arguing itself for its own exemption. They were arguing that as a result of amateurism, that they should be exempted from the antitrust laws. And the court basically said, no, we don't create exemptions. Courts don't create exemptions to the antitrust laws. And they pointed to baseball as an example of something that was created, but they now realized was essentially uh, nonsensical. How do you get in the most efficient way possible to the United States Supreme Court? They've given you that invitation. You accepted the invitation. But to get to the party and to get before the nine justices, you've got to go through lower court litigation, appellate litigation. And I noticed in naming the parties, you only named Major League Baseball and not any of the, you know, the member teams as defendants. And one of the articles that I I read in The Athletic suggested that that was an attempt to avoid some of the jurisdictional wrangling. So is this really designed to go to the Supreme Court in the most expeditious way possible? How do you get around the indispensable party issues? That is, the the, well, if they want to join, they can join. My guess is they don't want to join. And they're named as as co-conspirators, specifically named co-conspirators, which you're allowed to do. And the reason we did it that way is precisely what you're uh, alluding to, and which is we wanted a clean shot, get to the Supreme Court if we can, as quickly as we can. Are you going to be taking any discovery in the case, or is this going to go to an appellate posture based upon motions to dismiss and then take appeals? I think it's not likely in the first instance to have discovery because it's just it would be a, a largely a waste of time. I'm, I'm assuming that Major League Baseball will move to dismiss based on the existence of the antitrust exemption. And I'm more likely than not, the district court's going to uphold that as other district courts have, because they look up to their brother, the nine brethren up top and say, how do I go about, you know, overruling a Supreme Court decision? Similarly, as you know, we filed in New York Southern District case would then go on appeal to the Second Circuit. And they more likely than not, would also follow precedent. But we think we could get that done fairly quickly and expeditiously. And then the issue is, will the Supreme Court take cert? Now, you've asked for very specific antitrust relief relating to the ability of major league teams to sort of you know, negotiate in a free market. But how broadly are you trying to take on the entire remaining vestiges of the antitrust exemption? Is that on trial here? 
Yes, I think it is on trial. I think in order for our case to succeed successfully to a trial, we're going to have to undo the baseball antitrust exemption. Will that have any down the road impacts in other areas besides minor league baseball? I mean, you just finished litigating a federal antitrust case concerning the relocation of the Oakland Raiders. Could this create consequences for relocations of professional sports teams as well as player management relations? Well, certainly I think it could complicate franchise movements in baseball and other things that whether it's in intellectual property and other areas where they have been able to act jointly without the worry of uh, being attacked for anti-competitive behavior. So that, you know, if in fact we were successful in undoing the baseball exemption, it would have a significant impact on baseball. But remember, Dan, the other sports are doing quite well even though the antitrust laws apply to them. Right. And I, and I think that's kind of to our, our earlier point, right? The other sports, baseball is the only one of our major sports, really the only sport that I'm aware of that has this antitrust exemption. And Dan brought up some of these comments in Austin. The recent Supreme Court case, Austin versus NCAA, essentially said, if you're a sports business, we, we don't really care. We're still going to give you the normal analysis here. And these other, the other three major sports, I mean, just you know, hockey, football, basketball, they have these non-statutory labor exemptions that are collectively bargained for in some way, shape, or form. The things that we want to allow as the union will allow, it's not just, you know, uh, we're going to give the league complete deference because they have this exemption. So, Jim, the question that we got, you know, Dan and I got today, and, and uh, we, we promised our listeners we'd ask you, certainly Major League Baseball is going to move to dismiss here. They're going to move to dismiss on the exemption, and they're probably going to move to dismiss in that, you know, motion. They're going to cite to this recent precedent. There are two cases that came to mind that in 2018, the United States Supreme Court dismissed, denied certiorari on. There are two cases, one Wyckoff versus Office of Commissioner of Baseball, which is a Second Circuit case involving a challenge brought by scouts. I believe the main scout was with the Kansas City Royals, and they were alleging that it wasn't fair that scouts couldn't move between teams. There was an issue with respect to overtime wages. And similarly, on the same day, the Supreme Court denied certiorari on that case. They also denied a case, right field rooftops versus Chicago Cubs baseball club, a case that involved a challenge by owners of adjacent buildings that, you know, you could sit on their roof and they were going to charge tickets. And the Cubs, I guess, threatened to block those particular seats so nobody could see. So obviously different cases, one involving a challenge from scouts, the other one involving the Chicago Cubs um, and rooftop viewing, but both involved a challenge to Major League Baseball's antitrust exemption. I guess I'll just kind of ask it to you open-ended. Does the history of those two cases, how does that impact your case in terms of just winning and losing and maybe getting to the Supreme Court level? Well, um, you know, there are different cases. I, the, actually, the Wyckoff case didn't directly involve the baseball antitrust exemption per se because it was a case brought under the Donnelly Act. And the question was whether or not the Donnelly Act was so close to the antitrust exemption that the antitrust exemption essentially preempted the Donnelly Act and the courts ruled that it did. And the Supreme Court decided that it weren't going to take cert on that kind of narrow issue. I'm not that familiar with the Cubs case other than you could see why a Supreme Court thinking to themselves, is this really the right case to take involving whether or not somebody could sit on the roof and, and overlooking the stadium and, and, and actually be able to see the Cubs play? It, it, it doesn't have that kind of panache. Both those cases uh, predate the decision in the NCAA case, uh, which I think is critically important. But, but in addition to that, if you look at what happened in our case, 
where a group of wealthy people get together and decide that they're going to eliminate the business of 40 less wealthy people. That has an impact not only on major league uh, or rather the 40 minor league teams, but it has an impact on all of the towns throughout the United States. In many of these cities and villages and small towns, the only sport available is minor league baseball. And the major league baseball owners decided they were just going to eliminate that for 40 towns and villages all over the country. Seems to me it has much more broader implications than whether or not you can sit on the roof and and see into Wrigley Field or whether or not a a different statute applies under the antitrust laws. Is this a slam dunk? I don't believe it's a slam dunk by any means. We understand that this is an uphill battle, but as I think we said in the complaint, it really is time to put the exemption back into the dustbin of history where it belongs. Other than the dicta in Alston, which is very important dicta, why do you think this case will succeed where others have failed And what impact, if any, do you think the new composition of the Supreme Court plays in favor of vacating the antitrust exemption? Well, I, you know, I I think you mentioned something that I think is quite important. I think you have since uh, even in the last few years, you have three new Supreme Court justices, all of whom, while they may fall on the conservative side, are all real legal scholars and are, when you looked at both Justice Gorsuch's opinion and the Kavanaugh concurrence, you can see there was a real interest here on the part of at least some members of the Supreme Court. And I would mention that it may be of some significance that Justice Sotomayor, when she was a district court judge here in New York, was the judge who ruled in favor of the players in connection with ending the uh, strike and lockout in 1995. So she also has some familiarity with baseball. And as I say, the the fact is that this particular set of claims has far broader implications than some of the other cases that were much more narrowly drafted. In some of the articles I've read today, skeptics point to the enactment of the Curt Flood Act as foreclosing your lawsuit. What do you say about that kind of argument? And how do you I guess, uh, overcome the Curt Flood Act statutory argument as a defense to your case. I would say that the skeptics are morons. If you look at the act, the act is very specific as to what uh, (laughs) Congress intended. Even Major League Baseball, I don't think, could with a straight face uh, argue that as a result of the Curt Flood Act, that the rest of their exemption is okay. I just, God bless the skeptics. If the world didn't have skeptics, we wouldn't have morons. Some of whom may be former associates of your current law firm. And they very well may be. <laughs> we didn't always hire that well. I'm going to steal that line that the skeptics are morons. I'm going to, that's going to apply in, in all sorts of ways, shapes, or forms. So Jim, I, one area that we didn't get into was, you know, kind of the last time in our sports world, legal world, that the antitrust exemption kind of came up was not so long ago. Major League Baseball was supposed to have their all-star game in Atlanta. And there was a very big controversy circled around baseball moving their all-star game to Colorado, you know, after this Georgia controversial voting law was passed and and why baseball had the power to move the game. And there was a a lawsuit that was ultimately dismissed, but filed by local Atlanta business owners, you know, against Major League Baseball for loss of business and whatnot. So not that that lawsuit was successful. I don't think anyone necessarily thought it would be. But what, what did, you know, come off of that was a movement by politicians to try to end the baseball antitrust exemption. So this is a 
a quote from Ted Cruz just a couple months ago. Senator Ted Cruz, quote, if Major League Baseball is going to act dishonestly and spread lies about Georgia's voting rights bill to favor one party against the other, they shouldn't expect to continue to receive special benefits from Congress. I believe there are two bills that are currently pending, some with you know decent support. I think it's mainly from the Republican side. But, you know, maybe I, I don't want to, maybe all the skeptics are more, but there, there are some people also dropping in, you know, our replies and saying, it's good with what, you know, Jim and that the plaintiff side is doing, but isn't Congress the better avenue to challenge baseball's antitrust exemption as opposed to the courts? What, what do you have to say on that end? Well, I mean, we all know how dysfunctional Congress is. Those, those bills are likely to go absolutely nowhere. And, you know, the reality is the Supreme Court created this exemption. They're the ones that can uncreate it. If, as we know, the Supreme Court currently is seriously thinking about overturning Roe v. Wade. Good God, I would think that this would be a lot easier to overturn. All right, Jim, there are many other minor league baseball teams that are impacted by, the, by Major League Baseball's decision. You filed suit on behalf of four of those teams in the Southern District of New York. Do you anticipate that there could be other lawsuits filed in other circuits by other minor league teams? And if so, could that be beneficial to your case in terms of creating a circuit split? The answer is I'm, I'm not sure. I, I think that a number of these clubs that were eliminated, uh, actually Major League Baseball went out and they, as I understand it, they essentially bought up the any potential lawsuits. They would write a check for several hundred thousand dollars to try to eliminate this very lawsuit. And so a, a number of the 40 teams have, I believe, settled essentially with Major League Baseball. And then a number of others, uh, God, I, it's, it just gets into, uh, you know, a, a certain amount of initiate, but a good many of the 40 teams were co-owned by the same groups that own other Major League teams. And what Major League Baseball did is they basically went to these owners of the, or these group owners, and they essentially said to them, you know, let's say you have two or three other teams that have not been eliminated, you're going to have to give us a release with regard to the team that got eliminated. Wouldn't you think to yourself, gee, they, they might just be a little worried about this if they're going out and essentially extorting people into giving up their rights. Sure, sure, absolutely. Uh, listen, you're a stranger to suing Major League Baseball on behalf of the Staten Island minor league team. You have another pending lawsuit that's in the New York County Supreme Court you know, system, and I, I think part of it is on appeal, I, I believe, to the first Department of Appellate Division. What is the connection or relationship between the two different lawsuits, the success in one hinge on success in the other? Are they just parallel cases under different legal theories? Yeah, they, I think that that's the best way to describe the pending lawsuits. We do have two lawsuits. We may have another one soon to be filed under state laws, either breach of contract or tortious interference, and those claims will go forward. But the antitrust claim is a parallel lawsuit, but the, the legal theories are completely different. So, Jim, I, I just have one more, at least in my end. I mean, we, we should bring it up, right? Baseball is dealing with the, you know, lots of problems on the labor level right now. Certainly they're in the midst of a lockout, could have a, a shortened season for the first time in, in many years. The answer to this might be pretty straightforward, but I figured we'd get your opinion on it. How, if at all, does baseball's you know, lockout and, and labor issues impact this lawsuit? And, and I mean, namely, right, the lockout is going to be centered, and, and we're going to spend a lot of time, I'm sure, in the next couple of weeks and months talking about it, 
But the lockout centers on baseball salaries, rookie salaries, when they come up, I mean, probably part, one of the biggest issues that, uh, you know, during CBA negotiations this year will be the Major League Baseball salary arbitration system, why players are working essentially for free, you know, minimum baseball uh, salary for the first three years, and the system of, of Major League Baseball arbitration, when you have players uh, like a Juan Soto, who maybe are the best players in Major League Baseball, but their salaries are, are kind of controlled. You know, I don't I don't know if there's necessarily a relation between um, the lockout and the timing of this lawsuit, but, you know, I, I figured we'd give you the floor. There's no direct relationship. Obviously, you know, to some degree, the fact that those issues are being negotiated or fought over, and this is a separate path that really doesn't impact the labor negotiations that are going on. But given the fact that one of my uh, former partners and friends is the chief negotiator for the players, you know, one of the factors I, I told him the other day, I said, this will keep their lawyers busy on another front. I thought you were going to say that, but that's, if that's all it is, I think that it's good for us too. Uh, you know, as sports lawyers, we need to stay busy during, during. No Absolutely. Game. That's important. Jim, before we turn to your book, I just have one question about the Ninth Circuit's ruling in the city of Oakland case. That was a setback on the federal antitrust level. Are you pursuing rehearing on Bonk, or are you going to go forward potentially to the U.S. Supreme Court to sort of revive the federal antitrust case, or are you focusing solely on the state court appeal on the relocation policy constituting, you know, a contract and third-party beneficiary was pursuing the, the similar claim that the city of St. Louis, you know, recently settled their lawsuit over? We're making a decision in the in the near term as to whether or not to go for rehearing on Bonk or to just go directly to the Supreme Court. In all likelihood, we will do one or the other. Right now, I, I'm frankly, given the very stringent principles that are laid down in the Ninth Circuit as, as to when you go for rehearing, I'm personally leaning towards just going to cert, for, for cert, but we haven't made a final decision. All right. Well, Christmas season is upon us. And I regret not being able to attend your uh, your book party. It was a night celebrating Jim Quinn at Michael's in New York City on November 18th. I was in Russia. That was my excuse for not being able to make it. But I think well, you were missed. <laughs> you recently published a book titled Don't Be Afraid to Win, How Free Agency Has Changed the Business of Pro Sports. And the last time you were on Conduct Detrimental, you told this incredible inside baseball story <laughs> about how the NBA salary cap came about and your, your, your negotiations and interactions with former NBA commissioner David Stern. Surely you've got a well of baseball stories, at least one that you could share with us. I think I can give you two quickly. One of them relates to a lawsuit I brought against Major League Baseball back in the early 80s, in which we, on behalf of the players, were seeking to get separate compensation for television and cable television rights, which was just coming into the fore at that time. We lost spectacularly, but you will recall, you hear at the end of every broadcast, we made them say something about their copyright rights. That's because of Jim Quinn. They decided they had to say that uh, in order to protect their rights. When, uh, as a result of the lawsuit that we brought. We lost, but at least every time I hear that, I think to myself, good, we made them say something about their copyright rights. But the story that I'll, I'll try to tell, and I'll try to tell it as uh, concisely as I can, it's, it's related in, in uh, greater detail in the book, but this also relates to baseball. So back in maybe probably 10, 12 years ago, I don't remember the exact dates, you may recall 
that there was a three-way swap of, of franchises involving what was the uh, what had been the Montreal Expos and the Miami team and and the Boston Red Sox. I won't get into all the details of the swap, but we ended up representing a number of the limited partners in what had been the Montreal Expos, and we sued Major League Baseball, and in particular, we sued Bud Selig and the then deputy commissioner them under the RICO statutes, the racketeering statutes. And it made a big splash and it was really a lot of fun. But eventually the case got settled. But the funny part about the story is I got a call from the then head of USA Network, who was a close friend of mine and a client. And he asked me if I wanted to go to one of the playoff games in Yankee Stadium. And I said, yeah, sure, fine. And he said, yeah, I got these tickets um, and they're really good tickets. I said, okay, good. So. We go to the game, and they, they are. They're great tickets. They're right back at the home plate. Beautiful. you know. Uh, and I asked him. I leaned over to him. Now, this was a week after we had sued Major League Baseball and Bud Selig for being a, a racketeer. And I, I looked over to my friend Steve Brenner, and I said, Steve, you know, these are great seats. Where did where'd you get them? He said, oh, these are the commissioner's seats. <laughs> and I, I said, I don't think he would be really happy to know that I was sitting in his seats. And sure enough, the next day, uh, Steve got a call from uh, the guy who then was the head of Major League Properties or whatever. And, and the guy said to him, was that Jim Quinn sitting with you in the commissioner's seats? And he <laughs> said, yes. He said, you know, you should, you, you should never bring him to a baseball game again. And I, I thought to myself, I've been banned from baseball. Not just the commissioner seats, any seat in any, any seat. No, I was not allowed. I was not allowed to go. Apparently, according to this guy, uh, I wasn't allowed to go to a baseball game again. It's problematic, Jim. But uh, you know, um, listen. Now, now, modern day technology, they can retina scan you. But uh, you know, I think you, I think you're probably safe. <laughs> So, Jim, um, as, as we're getting you out, obviously the book is Don't Be Afraid to Win, How Free Agency Changed the Name of Business of Pro Sports. Can you tell uh, our listeners how, uh, how they can find the book? You know, and um, maybe, uh, the, again, Christmas shopping. It's a good time for to buy some sports out here. Oh, yeah, this is easy to get. Just go on Amazon. It's, it pops right up. It's, you know, one of the great sports books in the history of the world. And, you know, I'm sure you get it. Uh, it may even be discounted now. But it's going like hotcakes, so I would I would uh, urge all your listeners to to go, get online quickly, and and you can get it in time for Christmas. Well, Jim, it was a pleasure having you. And listen, I, I know that your phone's been blowing up for appearances. If people want to uh, book Jim on their shows, or you know just want to get a piece of Jim, uh, we have the contact. Jim's now a two-time guest of the show, so you're technically a friend of the show at this point. Absolutely, it's always a pleasure being with you guys. Thank you very much, Jim. And I look forward to our event on Wednesday. Uh, yes. Having a yep. post-mortem on the St. Louis Rams relocation lawsuit. Thank you for inviting me to participate in that. That's a tough audience. Uh, I've got to, please give me yeah, all Yeah, you got to be real prepared, Dan. <laughs> real prepared. Okay. Thanks, Jim. Okay. Take care, guys. Okay. Well, that was Jim Quinn, who's one of the lead attorneys for the four minor league baseball teams suing Major League Baseball in a newly filed antitrust case. He's also counsel of record for the city of Oakland in their 
ongoing battle to gain damages against the National Football League over the Raiders' relocation to Las Vegas. As he mentioned and broke on our on our podcast, the city of Oakland is going to either seek rehearing on Bank or much more likely pursue a petition for writ of certiorari with the United States Supreme Court in an attempt to keep the federal antitrust claims alive against the National Football League. And uh, even barring that, there's still the state court aspect to the lawsuit, which involves the breach of contract and unjust enrichment claims, which mirror the claims that the city and county of St. Louis filed against the National Football League, which recently settled for $790 million. And then last of all, he's the author of the Selling Like Hotcakes, best book in sports law that would make the perfect stocking stuffer for all you sports law aficionados out there, which is Don't Be Afraid to Win, how free agency changed the business of pro sports. I already started reading it. It's a fantastic book. A lot of great anecdotes and stories you know, from somebody who was on the inside of the room and was actually not just a fly on the wall in those conversations, but actually impacted the outcomes in all of those cases. So I highly recommend this book to our listeners and, and anyone interested in sports law would make the perfect Christmas gift with four days or five days left to go before Christmas. It's not too late to order it. So what did you think, Dan? I mean, I thought Jim was excellent. I love having Jim on it. And maybe as a, as a weird note, Dan, when I grew up, my, uh, you know, my, my dad's old house that he grew up in, in Long Island, you know, that, that bell that kept going off every you know, half an hour or so? I know that bell very well. That's like the, the grandfather clock, you know, that goes off every half hour. So I, I a little, little bit of, you know, nostalgia in there. But uh, as for substance, I thought Jim was great as always, you know, and, and we won't disclose our sources, but we had some really high level people asking us, you know, you know, ask Jim this question. We also had a really, I, I won't say the name of who this person is, but someone who um, tried to get Jim on their show and uh, Jim said he was already booked up. So, you know what? Are you kidding me? I listen, I, I think the interview speaks for itself. I, I think cert- certainly, Let's just, let's just call a spade a spade. This is a challenge to baseball's antitrust exemption. Cases have gone there before and lost. We have no idea, right, what's going to happen with this case. But if someone like Jim thinks it's a good time to challenge baseball's antitrust exemption, and Jim is certainly one of the, you know, one, if not, of the top sports lawyers ever in the field, you have to listen. You have to give it its due credit. So, you know, I, I, that's, that's what I think it's at. I think we're going to dedicate enough time to it. And, you know, if this case pops, you know, two, three years down the line, this, this might be the case, but you never know. Well, you know who else thinks it's a pretty good idea? I bet Brett Kavanaugh also think, thinks it's a pretty good idea to bring this lawsuit based upon his dissent in, in the Alston case. And, you know, from a selfish perspective, I, I really enjoy having Jim on our podcast. When I began my legal career in 1992, I was just this little pitcher at Wild Gotchel and Manji's in 1992 as an associate in the securities litigation group. And Jim was the star you know, the head of the litigation department at Weill at that time, taking on the National Football League in a series of, you know, just sort of path-breaking lawsuits that led to NFL free agency. And that was the time when I was an associate in my first year, Jim ran the, the litigation department and um, Jeffrey Kessler, who many of the people who follow sports law today know very well from his recent efforts, he was the head of the business or trade practices regulation group at the firm. And those two titans of sports law actually partnered on so many of these cases. And for me, it makes me feel like, wow, I'm back back at Wild. It makes me feel very young again to know that I'm talking to Jim Quinn about sports law. Here we are 30 years later, and he's still taking on these 
historically important sports law cases. So for me, it's just a personal thrill to get a chance to interact with Jim, you know, 30 years later and on, on all these different cases. So this was a fun interview and I'm glad we we're able to bring this to the Conduct Detrimental audience right before Christmas. So that's our Christmas present to all you guys and, and ladies and gentlemen. It was definitely a highlight for me to, to always talk with Jim, whether it's about the relocation case or this lawsuit, name it. He's like a walking encyclopedia of sports law and was sort of in the room in all these historically important events. So many great stories. And I think this could be the capstone for his career. Speaking of gifts, Dan, we can't go a whole episode without mentioning our, our favorite bar review, of course, in the, in the country, right? Themis Bar Review is obviously uh, the number one bar prep company in the country. Themisbar.com slash conductmental. For Christmas, and I think for the foreseeable future, they're giving $200 off of their already $800 discount, but the 200 is special for conductdetrimental.com listeners. And again, if you want a special treat, I don't know if we still have any more shirts left, but if you did sign up for Themis and you want to send us proof that you signed up for Themis, just send me a DM or whatever you need to, and I'm happy to send the powers that be uh, a famous proof that you signed up, and then they'll send you some, some special swag. Okay, Dan, uh, I think, um, you know, on, on our way out, you know, you and I both know know the name. So we're looking at the complaint, 33-page complaint filed by Wal Gottschall at the gym's firm Bergen Androfi, and I see a name, Zach Schreiber, on the, on the complaint for Wal Gottschall. I'm like, that sounds very familiar. I know Zach Schreiber at Wal Gottschall. He took over uh, Fordham's national basketball negotiation competition from me, a competition I created. And he was the president, I think the president of sports law, but he was, I know, the head of this competition. So listen, dreams do come true. Zach went from Fordham Sports Law Forum to being, the, I guess, one of five lawyers on a case that's at the heart of, you know, it's the ultimate sports law issue, challenging baseball's antitrust exemption. So shout out to Zach, Dan. And low key, Zach might have facilitated the first meetup between you and I. I gotta tell you, they grow up fast, don't they? I mean, I remember him when he was a law student, you know, trying to talk to me about writing a law review article about sports betting. And I, I think he was instrumental in one of my appearances at the Fordham Sports Law Forum. Unfortunately, he graduated and now I don't have any you know, inside contacts at Fordham. I'm your contact. I'm your contact. You tell me, I'll hook you up, Dan. Well, it's kind of funny. My last appearance at the Fordham Law Sports Law Forum coincided with Zach's last year at the school. So we need to find the next Zach Schreiber to get one of those bookings, or you're, you're going to have to sort of lean on somebody at Fordham to get me invited back there. Well, Dan, after what you did last time, I'm not sure you're going to get invited back. <laughs> what did I do? I don't remember. I mean, I, I just hear of this debauchery. There was cigars involved. There was some alcohol involved. It was just a complete complete night of debauchery. I'm just, it, I'm could, it, it, could, it could have been the expenses on my hotel bill, I think I spent an extra night or two in the city, wow. maybe a little bit beyond. I, I heard the sports law forum. I'll, I'll give you, well, wh what I heard truthfully is that you were the life of the party. This is back in, I think, 2015, right around there. But that, Dan, you came in from out of town. You went out with the crew. You, you hung out. You, you know, you, you showed up. And uh, I, well, not just showed up, you showed out. You were, you know, the, the, the main attraction. So I think people really liked you. So I'll get you back on the roster, Dan. Listen, I'm, I'm still a, an alum. I'm still an advisor to the sports law forum. I'm happy to hook you up. Well, those were in my younger days when I was very reliant on people who were picking up the bar tab. I wanted to show my 
appreciation. Uh, but they do it up so nicely. You know, it's one of the few sports law conferences where they fly people in, they pay for the airfare, hotel, they take you out for a nice dinner, bring all the, you know, all the invited you know, panelists and you know, they get together for sort of a pre-conference dinner. I mean, it's just a first class operation and it's always a privilege and an honor uh, to have any affiliation with Fordham Law School. I know you actually have a real affiliation with the school, but for me, three years running, uh, it, it was one of my favorite stops uh, on the sports law circuit. And I always look forward to it. And those were some, uh, some fun times. One final shout out before we put this in the books, Francesca Casalino over at Brooklyn. She's a 2L. She wrote an article for the Brooklyn Sports Law Entertainment blog and, she, and it was on Major League Baseball's lockout. So she saw my tweet today and she said, hey, I have this great article I wrote for our Brooklyn Sports Law blog. Can I post it on Conduct Detrimental? And I said, of course, of course you can. So she updated it with uh, obviously what, what occurred this morning and we posted it uh, up on the site. So I think we're expecting another article from um, you know Mike Lawson, who's the uh, producer of this podcast. So we're going to be covering this early and often. Listen, you know we want to be at the forefront of history. So if this is the case that takes down baseball, we want to put our our flag down and then uh, you know we'll follow. But you know you guys obviously know who broke it and uh, who was here first. So that's always what you can count on with uh, Conic Detrimental. Okay, I guess that leaves one more episode before the end of the year. I think we'll do a year-end wrap-up, the top sports law stories of the year. And we haven't fully planned it out yet, but expect a few. Don't expect, but we may have a few surprises in store, but we're going to do our top stories of the year. Of course, unless something else breaks, which requires us to have a separate standalone episode. But let's do a good year-end recap. Uh, obviously, for those who have followed the St. Louis relocation litigation, we'll spend a little bit of time, uh, you know, just sort of talking about that case, as well as some of the other leading stories that we've covered throughout calendar 2021. So that's it for this week's episode. As always, you can find Dan Wallach on social media at Wallach Legal, myself, Dan Lust at Sports Law Lust, the show at Con Detrimental, the website, ConductDetrimental.com. And again, Jim's book, Don't Be Afraid to Win. You can find that anywhere, especially on Amazon. For Dan, myself, the Conduct Detrimental family, have a lovely, happy holidays. And we'll see you next time on another episode of Conduct Detrimental.